ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. They've made a mistake of historic proportions. We will exact a price that will be remembered by them and Israel's other enemies for decades to come. When Hamas launched its surprise attack on Israel in October, it was immediately compared to another attack, also in October, 50 years ago, on the Jewish holy day of Yom Kippur. And in both conflicts, the attackers shared a similar goal, to disrupt the status quo and shatter Israel's sense of invincibility. In 1973, it was a coalition of Egyptian and Syrian forces that caught Israel off guard. But that war forced Israel to start negotiating and eventually to a peace treaty between Egypt and Israel. The Middies summit at Camp David is over and Israel and Egypt have agreed to two documents taking a giant step toward achieving peace in their troubled corner of the world. On Rear Vision this week, the story behind this historic peace treaty and how the impact of that deal can be seen in the current war between Hamas and Israel. From the creation of Israel in 1948, Egypt was the dominant power in the Middle East. No other Arab country could go to war with Israel without the support of the Egyptian military. Ian Palmiter is a former Australian ambassador to Lebanon. It had the largest army of all the Arab states. And without Egypt being part of military action against Israel, it couldn't happen. The other states couldn't couldn't take it on by themselves. And that was the case in 67. The Israelis were determined that they would take out the Egyptian army first. And once they had done that, they really had no trouble winning that six-day war. Egypt had suffered a humiliating defeat and lost control of the Sinai Peninsula. Israel also captured the Golan Heights, the West Bank and the Gaza Strip. Yossi Alpha is a former official with the Mossad. Israel in general and the Israeli government led by Golda Meir and Moshe Dayan was in a, in a kind of euphoria. The sense was that uh, we've beaten the Arabs, we've beaten a coalition of uh, Arab states, that they're not capable of beating us uh, and we can afford to be confident. The sense was that in Egypt, Anwar Sadat, who who was uh, alternately threatening war and trying in his own way to offer some sort of peace process, but on his own conditions, he was not respected. He was uh, considered something of a buffoon. Israel's position, at which Golda enunciated numerous times before the war, but this goes back uh, decades, was uh, we're prepared to talk directly, sit across the table with our Arab neighbors and talk peace. And their position had always been, no, we will not talk to you. We don't recognize you. Therefore, we will not sit down and talk to you. You are illegitimate in our eyes. The president of Egypt in the lead-up to 1973 was Anwar Sadat, who'd taken over from the hugely popular Abdel Nasser. Khaled Al-Gindi is director of the program on Palestinian-Israeli affairs at the Middle East Institute. Sadat was very different than his predecessor, Gamal Abdel Nasser. 
Uh, Abdel Nasser was a an Arab nationalist. He was a pan-Arabist. He was probably the most popular uh, leader the Arab world has ever known. Um, and he was revered, you know, from Morocco to uh, Kuwait, uh, from Iraq to Yemen. Sadat was different in that he wasn't necessarily a pan-Arabist. He still spoke in the vernacular of, of Arab nationalism, but he was really a kind of Egypt-first type of leader. Uh, he was focused on Egypt's economic problems and, and especially regaining Egyptian national pride by uh, securing the return of the Sinai. And so that became his main priority. That's why he was prepared to engage in that process with the Israeli side. You know, Sadat's primary interest in launching the war was to to shake Israel of its complacency and to deliver a shock to the Israeli system, but ultimately uh, with the aim of forcing Israel back to the negotiating table, because up until then, Israel had no incentive. You know, Sadat demonstrated fairly early on that he was willing to break with other Arab leaders in order to secure that goal of the return of the Sinai. Sadat had begun to initiate several potential peace initiatives with Israel, but his attempts weren't taken seriously by Prime Minister Golda Meir or Henry Kissinger, who oversaw the US approach to the Middle East at the time. Sadat had initiated some kind of peace feelers via Henry Kissinger and and the Nixon administration, which, um, I mean, basically the substance was you Israelis give me back all of Sinai, and I'll give you something between non-belligerency and peace. It wasn't quite clear. It didn't get that far. These were not direct discussions. Uh, These were uh, indirect via Kissinger. And uh, they were taken seriously by by Golda and and Moshe Dayan, the Minister of Defense, who in any case said to Kissinger, well, look, we can't even begin to consider these now because we've got elections coming. There were elections scheduled for shortly after what turned out to be the Yom Kippur War. Uh, We've got elections coming, and uh, we'll think about this and talk about this after we win the election. And Kissinger, who had an an important role here, uh, which is to this day not entirely clear, uh, but Kissinger basically let Golda and Dayan believe that there was a peace process in the offing after the elections, which means there's no war in the meantime. Not that he said that, but there had been earlier, a few months before the Yom Kippur War, there had been a a false alarm, uh, which in retrospect turns out to to be part of the Egyptian grand strategic deception plan. There had been an alarm that they were massing forces to start a war across the Suez Canal. And uh, we went on alert. When the alert was cancelled, one of the things Kissinger told us was, uh, look, we have this peace process. I'll hold on to it for you. But don't start a war in the meantime. Don't preempt anything. Nabil Fahmy is a former Egyptian foreign minister. The attack was a non-surprise surprise because they could see all of our, our uh, military training, repositioning on the other side of the Suez Canal. But there was a sense of invincibility on the Israeli side and what was crudely considered arrogance of power. And an interesting point to take into account here is why we went to war, because Sadat was not a warmonger in any sense. He basically went to war in order to negotiate because nobody would take him seriously. 
before he went to war. He, he floated several peace initiatives to the Israelis publicly, and they completely ignored him because they didn't consider him to be a viable, strong leader, or that they had to respond to a gesture from, his, from the Egyptian side. If I fudged my age, added two more years, I would have witnessed four wars, four Arab-Israeli wars, in my first 25 years. So he wanted to move Egypt away from this endless cycle of war, which was not only creating a lot of tension, but also usurped a lot of resources. That was his objective. I want to be part of the modern, quote, unquote, Western world, and nobody wants to take me seriously. And I say this not as by way of critique of the Americans or the, uh, or the Israelis. Even Egyptians didn't take him seriously. And then when he went to war, the whole thing flipped. It is an all-out war. That's how Israeli Defense Minister Moshe Dayan describes an invasion of the Golan Heights and the east bank of the Suez by Syria and Egypt. The surprise attacks came early this morning in the air and on the ground. We are now one hour's drive into the Sinai Desert, and that's as far as the military here will allow us to go. They do not want newsmen reporting on the war at first hand. Despite the early successes by the Egyptian and Syrian forces, Israel did regain control, and within three weeks, the fighting stopped. Egypt had not yet won back the Sinai Peninsula, but the damage to Israel had been done. The Israeli public was thoroughly traumatised by the war, and especially by Israeli losses. Nearly 3,000 soldiers killed, which left a lot of grieving homes and a lot of neighbourhoods where someone is grieving, and Israel was... A, had a much smaller population then, so everybody knew somebody, etc. And this didn't go away very fast, this sense of trauma. And in the background, Kissinger, acting as lead negotiator, began the very early steps towards peace. Even before the fighting stopped, Kissinger went back into action to uh, mediate ceasefires and then partial withdrawals uh, and start a process. This was the beginning of the Israel-Arab peace process with direct meetings between Israeli and, and Egyptian officers. This was going on completely behind the scenes. There were these partial withdrawals, separation of forces agreements. In the election held not long after the war, Prime Minister Golda Meir held on to power, but not for long. Part of the trauma and this is relevant to today as well. Part of the trauma of the surprise attack and the losses was anger at Golda Meir and at, and at Moshe Dayan. There was a commission of inquiry, which probably, unfortunately, its mandate was only to document what went wrong at the military level and not the political level. So Golda and Dayan emerged unscathed from the Commission of Inquiry, but not from the public, in time for her to lose the election. It, she certainly lost mandates, and the right-wing opposition, what, what was going to be the Likud, gained some mandates in that election. And basically, public pressure, spearheaded by veterans of the war, angry veterans of the war, led her to resign, and Diane to resign. Their Labour Party colleague Yitzhak Rabin took over as Prime Minister and Defence Minister, but he also ended up resigning. Rabin resigned suddenly because of a, what looks in retrospect to be a completely minor scandal. Uh, his wife had a 
bank account left in the United States from when he was ambassador there. That was taboo at the time. It's a what if. Would he have won the election if he hadn't resigned? But in any case, Menachem Begin and the Likud came to power for the first time. And this is a direct outcome of the war. Israel, in a sense, hasn't looked back since. Despite the change of leadership and Israel's first right-wing prime minister, Menachem Begin, the negotiations with Egypt continued. And having a leader from the right made selling the idea of a peace agreement easier. Benny Morris is an Israeli historian. Initially, a lot of the public was very skeptical in 77-79 of the peace with Egypt. Much much of the right wing said, well, he will sign the peace treaty, we'll give him back Sinai, he'll get the whole of Sinai back, and then he will tear up the peace treaty, or his successors will tear up the peace treaty. Because Begin was a right winger and controlled the right, parliament voted for the peace treaty. Then, in 1977, Anwar Sadat makes a bold and unexpected move. He announces to the Egyptian parliament he's prepared to visit Israel in order to achieve peace. I was in Egypt uh, at, at that time, and it came as a, as a real surprise. It hadn't been foreshadowed in any way at all. He just said, uh, uh, if necessary, I will go to Jerusalem to start a genuine peace process. The Israelis didn't know about it at that point, I, I assume. Uh, certainly no one in his audience knew that he was going to say that. And a day or so later, he was actually arriving in Jerusalem. So it was a, 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 a remarkable uh, way in which, which he did it. Uh, set up was a, an extraordinarily canny and street-smart politician. What exactly went through Sadat's head when he stands up on November 9th, 77, before the Egyptian parliament with Yasser Arafat in the audience, the unsuspecting Yasser Arafat, and says, uh, I'm inviting myself to Jerusalem to make peace. I'm prepared to go to the Knesset in order to talk to them to make peace. Very few people understood what had gone on behind the scenes to cook up this initiative. Begin immediately said, yes, you're invited. Yasser Arafat, as head of the Palestinian Liberation Organization, had enjoyed strong support from Egypt under President Abdel Nasser. But Anwar Sadat had different priorities. Arafat's leadership was quite close to uh, to the Egyptian regime. It was a mutually beneficial relationship. For the Egyptians, they got to burnish their nationalist credentials and say, we are the true champions of the Palestinian cause. And for for the PLO, Egypt being the most important Arab state and uh, the largest Arab army, it added a kind of strategic depth that they didn't have. When Sadat decided to make that visit uh, to Israel and signal, you know, look, I'm I'm prepared to take this bold step in recognizing you, Israel, in the hope that I will gain back Egyptian territory. PLO felt betrayed. I mean, they felt abandoned. They were not in a position where they could follow suit, despite the kind of pragmatic gestures that Arafat had been making to the Americans, he could not make those same kinds of gestures publicly uh, because of his own opposition within the Palestinian camp inside the PLO, and also because of other more hardline Arab states like Syria and Iraq and Libya and on whom the PLO also depended. So Sadat 
made this break with the PLO and with the broader Arab consensus and was ostracized uh, for having done so. In July, President Carter decided on a bold stroke. He invited two historic enemies to sit down together at Camp David to negotiate peace. And this takes us to 1978 and the final stage of negotiations which happened at Camp David between US President Jimmy Carter, Israeli Prime Minister Menachem Begin and Egyptian President Anwar Sadat. We are privileged to witness tonight a significant achievement in the cause of peace, an achievement none thought possible. The signing of the framework for the comprehensive peace settlement has a significance far beyond the event. It signals the emergence of a new peace initiative with the American nation in the heart of the entire process. And it was a famous French field commander who said that it is much more difficult to show civil courage than military courage. The Israeli-Egyptian peace treaty, which followed from that war, uh, was uh, miraculous. I mean, from 1948 until 1977, the Arab states had basically said no to any deal with Israel, any acceptance of Israel's existence. They never referred to the state of Israel. They talked about the Zionist entity or whatever. Uh, They refused to talk about Israel. It was never mentioned as a state. Uh, Their maps showed a blank space where Israel actually exists. And then they made peace. The Egyptians, the main Arab Arab state, made peace with Israel. And this changed the geopolitics of the region. So this was a major uh, revolutionary moment for Israelis. The Camp David Accords weren't just about a peace between Israel and Egypt. They also contained a framework on Palestine, although there was no Palestinian representation in the negotiations. Now, Sadat at Camp David insisted on a Palestinian track. In other words, he he said, look, we've always said we can't make peace with you until you deal with the Palestinian issue. Well, here I am making peace with you, but we need to show that we're dealing with the Palestinian issue too, which Begin didn't like but had to go along with. And that put some sort of Israeli-Palestinian peace process on the agenda. This was the beginning of Israeli-Palestinian peace talks, basically, under Sadat's auspices. They went nowhere, but they put the concept of autonomy on the map and on the agenda. We ultimately signed two documents with Israel. One, which was a bilateral peace agreement, our territory in exchange for demilitarization of forces in Sinai, etc., and recognition and what we call a framework agreement, which was supposed to establish principles for uh, how the West Bank is dealt with for the Palestinians and giving them autonomy and so on. And Nahum Begin, immediately after the signature, said, I respect the bilateral one because the negotiating party was in front of me. Regarding the other one, I'm not concerned with that. It helped peace and it delayed peace. It helped peace because it gave it actual teeth, became a reality, and it delayed peace because the Israelis then didn't feel that they had to negotiate seriously with the Palestinians because there's no real threat of war. The Camp David Accords were a 
uh, a blow to the to the Palestinians and to the Arab world in general. The the consensus of the Arab world was that Sadat had betrayed the Arab cause and the Palestinian cause by pursuing a unilateral peace with with Israel, and the PLO was not in a position uh, to to join that effort. And the way Sadat tried to compensate uh, for that weakness was. The Camp David Accords were plural. There were there were two framework agreements. One was a framework for peace with with Israel. The other agreement was a framework for Middle East peace more broadly that dealt directly with the Palestinian issue. It's been a, a relationship that's had its ups and downs. It's often called a cold peace from the. Egyptian perspective, first of all, it, uh, it it had a very bad effect as far as Sadat was concerned because he was assassinated in 81. So it's a much colder piece on the Egyptian side. But when Mubarak took over after Sadat, he decided essentially to, to make Egypt a key strategic partner of the United States on the basis of the agreement. And the United States was very happy to do that. And the result of that is that the uh, United States gives a, a significant amount of civil and military aid to, to Egypt, which is really vital for its economy. And fortunately, it actually uh, has survived. The treaty between Egypt and Israel was the first direct agreement with an Arab country. Others have followed. Before the current Gaza conflict, Israel was in the process of negotiating an agreement with Saudi Arabia. In my view, it's it's fundamental to what Hamas has done. Uh, Hamas, in a, an absolutely appalling way, of course, has actually put the Palestinian issue right to the top of the Middle East agenda. And the significance of the Yom Kippur War, or the Ramadan War, as Egyptians call it, was that it was the first of the separate peace agreements that Israel signed with Arab states. And after that, there came the Jordanian peace agreement in 1994. And then in 2020, the accords involving Bahrain, uh, the UAE, Sudan and Morocco. Israel's strategies has been to put the Palestinian issue right to the bottom of the agenda. The Egyptian peace agreement was actually the uh, basis, the building block for this. So that's where it all all comes from. And this strategy to get peace deals with Arab countries has been a priority in recent years under Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. Israel forged four peace treaties in four months with four Arab countries, the United Arab Emirates, Bahrain, Sudan and Morocco. The Abraham Accords were a pivot of history. It's very clear that the current government, uh, Netanyahu's government, uh, is very keen to to take further individual state peace agreements. The Abraham Accords, uh, but also with Saudi Arabia. And one of the consequences, of course, of what uh, Hamas did on the 7th of October is that that completely stymied the impending uh, Saudi-Israeli uh, uh, agreement, which was really on the verge of uh, of, of being, being worked out. And if that happened, the, all of the major Arab states essentially have made 
their own peace with with Israel. Yeah, and that's why Hamas wanted to disrupt all of that. Uh, Essentially, it it has now put the Palestinian issue back at the top of the agenda. And it's going to be very hard for Saudi Arabia to sign uh, any sort of separate agreement while the Palestinian issue remains as as undecided as, as it is. The October War of 1973 was the last conflict between Israel and a coalition of Arab states, and it was the start of the Israeli-Arab peace process. And those are two dynamics that continue to this day. I mean, look where we are now. One of Hamas's goals in attacking us on October 7th was to catalyze a response and send a message to its Islamist allies. Hezbollah, the the Houthis in Yemen, of course, Iran and and various pro-Iran militias. The attack is on. Join us. And this hasn't happened. It's very important to note that it hasn't happened. We've got, yes, we've got some fighting on the border with uh, Lebanon. Yes, the Houthis have fired a few missiles. These are very minor fronts. There's, There's no serious aggression on the part of the Islamists across those borders. We've had wars in the past. 50 years, but they were not all-out wars between Israel and a coalition of Arabs. And uh, even though the Islamists in in Gaza and their supporters, they have nothing in common with Sadat uh, and with the war we fought in 73, it's important to draw a line from 73 to now and point out that that 73 was the last Israeli war against a coalition. The 73 war had a major effect on the regions as a whole because it led to Egypt being taken out of the conflict between Israel and the Arab states. So essentially, the Palestinian issue was left to be resolved by the Palestinians themselves because there was not going to be an Arab force that would fight a war with Israel on their behalf. And the peace deal between Egypt and Israel also influenced the strategy of the PLO. The notion that the road to Palestinian liberation, the road to a Palestinian state, necessarily went through Washington. And so what became then the PLO's almost obsessive pursuit uh, of the United States and trying to enter a U.S.-led peace process, that became the central strategic goal of Palestinian diplomacy for the foreseeable future, right up into until this day. I mean, the PLO leadership is still, despite everything, committed to the idea of a U.S.-led peace process, which is pretty remarkable. And actually, one of the reasons why Hamas has been able to be so successful as a disruptor of that peace process, because it it hasn't actually produced any results. First Yasser Arafat and now Mahmoud Abbas, they were both committed to this notion of a U.S.-led peace process, and it didn't pay off. It has a lot to do with Hamas's growth and its popularity and its strength was derived primarily from that failure. The war 50 years ago forced Israel to negotiate and it was the beginning of a political process. But is that possible today? The difference now is no one is in the mood for diplomacy. And the other difference is 
it's it's really it's a focus on the war rather than the kind of diplomacy that could come out of it. There is a lot of talk about getting back to a political process that might lead to a two-state solution. But those proclamations might be more serious than they were the past three years. But it's also the worst possible environment for any kind of political process. Khaled Al-Gindi is director of the Program on Palestinian-Israeli Affairs at the Middle East Institute. Ian Palmiter is a former Australian ambassador to Lebanon. Yossi Alpha is a writer on Israel-related strategic issues and a former official with the Mossad. Benny Morris is an Israeli historian. And Nabil Fahmi is a former Egyptian foreign minister. This revision was produced by me, Jen Leake, and sound engineer Russell Stapleton for ABC RN. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio, and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.